0: This is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission is to probe the critical debates in archaeology through conversations with leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gayokono, or Cayuga Nation. The Gayokono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. An alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gayokono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gayokono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. As part of the fortieth Northeast Conference on Andean and Amazonian Archaeology and Ethnohistory, on November third, twenty twenty-three, Professor Frank Solomon from the Department of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison met with a panel of students and faculty to discuss his research in the Andes. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned to Radio Siams.
1: Hello, welcome to Radio Siams. I'm Matthew Velasco. I'm an assistant professor in anthropology and archaeology, and I'm delighted to welcome Frank Solomon to our podcast today. Uh, professor Solomon is an ethnographer and ethno of the Andes, a past president of the American Society of Ethnohistory. He has held NSF, Guggenheim, SAR, and NSF fellowships. He received the 2018 Lifetime Achievement Award of the American Society for Ethnohistory, And he is also an esteemed Cornell alum of our PhD program in anthropology from 1978, I believe. Today, we hope to have a wide-ranging conversation about Professor Solomon's career and engagement with multiple fields, anthropology, archaeology, linguistics, religion, et cetera, and different aspects of material studies that intersect his research. With regard to the latter, Professor Solomon has done groundbreaking work deciphering the cultural meanings of Andean quipus, knotted cords often compared to writing systems, and their relationship to forms of literacy and orality in the Andes more broadly. Related to this area of research are his books, The Chord Keepers, Quipus and Cultural Life in a Peruvian Village, and The Lettered Mountain. A Peruvian Village's Way with Writing, both from Duke University Press, and both books are accessible online through Cornell Library for our uh, uh, students and faculty. Professor Solomon is also especially well known for co-editing an authoritative translation and commentary of the Huaruchiri Manuscript, a 16th century text in Quechua that compiles Andean myths and religious traditions. In preparation for today's podcast, our panel, who will introduce themselves shortly, was encouraged to reflect on your work, Professor Solomon, its relationship to the their field, impact on their research. And in addition to the aforementioned books, uh, two high-profile journal publications of yours were distributed. Um, your 2001 publication, How Andean Writing Without Words Works, published in Current Anthropology, and your 2002 publication, Unethnic Ethnohistory on Peruvian Peasant Historiography and Ideas of Autochthony in the journal Ethnohistory. Now we're not going to dive into the minutiae and the footnotes of each and every publication. These are really a springboard for us to, to talk more about your work and your uh, your approach to field work and your, the way you interface with different disciplines. And so I will actually begin, not with one of the publications I've, I've mentioned, but with another one that was very impactful in my uh, scholarly formation. It's your 1995, I believe, book chapter on Andean mortuary practices known, called The Beautiful Grandparents. Um, I would call this a landmark synthesis of Andean and above ground mortuary practices that is served, um, whether you intended to or not, as a model for archeological inquiry, right? Uh, In some ways, very critically applied, looking at the uh, political dimensions of uh, monumental mortuary practices in the pre-Hispanic period. In other times, I would argue, uncritically applied, where um, the equation of chulpas, or above-ground tombs, and IUs or Andean corporate king groups, is projected uh, deep into time. So what I want to ask you, reflecting on this uh, chapter, but really a number of other publications that are, are widely cited by archaeologists, for context, the beautiful grandparents' Book chapter has been cited 212 times, according to Google Scholar. And much of those citations are from archaeologists. So now I arrive at my question What do you think of archaeologists' engagement with your work? And how have archaeological studies of material culture influenced your own work? So I'm interested in the conversations, right? As an ethnographer and ethno historian, how you've engaged with uh, material culture and how archaeological studies have also influenced your outlook as a scholar.
2: Right from the start, it's always been a, a central principle to try to practice ethnohistory and ethnography in a way that would be useful to archaeologists. Um, that means material culture, but it really didn't take any great effort to stick to materiality because uh, I also have tried always to keep my ethnohistoric inquiry closely connected to ethnography of living places, which, of course, means handling stuff. <laughs> and uh, I feel that this attachment has never let me down because cultural anthropology in the decades of my generation has an, unfortunately, tendency to kick itself higher and higher into the sphere of theory um, and then forget to come downstairs. Um, the study of manuscripts, which are of course a physical practice in villages, the study of kippus, uh, are the two things that have anchored me in what other people started to call material culture not really aware that that's the name of a field until I was already in it up to my ears. (laughs) Um, And yet I don't collect things. When I visit the houses of other anthropologists who are fascinated by arts, artifacts, uh, the concretization of culture, I usually find that they collect things within the bounds of legality, of course. Uh, And I don't... um, I always felt that the cultural sensibility, the the real content uh, of material cultures is made and moved from mind to mind. Uh, I see material culture as a body of media. Uh, I don't need to, and I don't want to collect them any more than just because I read a book, I need to own a copy of it. Uh, the single exception, I suppose, is Andean textiles. I don't collect them, but I have about two suitcases full of them. Uh, in, the, in, the, in, in that single example, we're up against an aesthetic and design tradition, so singular and so in so much a a sub-discipline of its own that uh, it just carries you away. Uh, To take an example of how the nitty-gritty is connected, uh, I had a dear friend who was my cousin, a Bolivian. He was from a European refugee family that landed in Bolivia, and he lived his whole life there, born and died there. And we used to love to, outside of anthropological, professional time, no grants, just friendship, uh, travel around Bolivia and Peru. And of course, we visited Tarabuco in the southwest of Bolivia, which is a place with a a truly inspiring textile culture, virtuoso culture. There, we enjoyed hearing Quechua spoken beautifully. We enjoyed meeting artisans who were aiming for the high end of artistic achievement. And we looked at the nuances of local style. One of the local styles is executed only in a dark garnet red and black. In that style, what's being created was an almost infernal representation. It always contains dancing gnomes and long-toothed creatures and black skies and an atmosphere of glowing embers. I was puzzled that such cheerful people (laughs) um, had developed a whole specialist tradition to express those qualities. One thing, a nitty-gritty detail that caught my eye was a strange-looking humpbacked creature that belonged in this little thread-made inferno. I went to uh, some professional meetings in the city of Sucre, and there lived a wonderful lady called Veronica Cereceda, who was a textile expert all her life, a great hero hero in preservation and publication, and uh, also cooperative financing of great textile art. She saw that same icon uh, in the textile hell, and uh, on the day when I was a guest in her institute gave a talk about what it is, and you know what it was? It was copied from a pack of camel cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) It was the cigarette camel uh, (laughs) turned into a a phantom of dantesque atmosphere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that was I thought it, oh, a marvelous example of interaction between material studies, whatever they are, uh, and uh, cultural anthropology, because it helped us to understand that hell in this Bolivian Quechua speaking environment is a playful idea. Uh, the camel monster. I believe is a relative of the hell fiends, who are sometimes painted in the murals of seventeenth and eighteenth century rural Andean churches. Um, but they're not intended to scare; they 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 give a kind of hot thrill of acid humor. Um, I w- I was never textile oriented proper, but among the things. That Andean people make. And indeed, a really iconic uh, piece of material culture, of course, is, is the quipu. Quipus uh, are not textiles, they shouldn't be confused. Um, they're entirely made by twisting and knotting and not by weaving. But they also involve a very intricate and even now only partially known set of connections between ideas and things.
1: Thank you for that very vivid ethnographic encounter. I, we will have to relay that story to uh, my colleague, uh, Ananda Aponte. has written a book about those very mur- hellish murals and I'm sure would be fascinated by the anecdote. Um, I will now turn over the mic to uh, Anna Whittemore from Anthropology and Archaeology. Anna, you may introduce yourself <laughs> with a bit more detail and then uh, present your question.
3: Thanks, Matt. Uh, yes, I am Anna Whittemore. I am a PhD candidate in Anthropology and I study archaeology and specifically bioarchaeology and the Peruvian Andes. It's Really wonderful to get to meet you and have the opportunity to talk with you, Um, Dr. Solomon. um, Thank you so much for coming to Cornell. Um, So I have a question about um, some of the... is building off of some of the works that Matt mentioned that are about Andean graphical culture and writing. Um, your research has been so important for engaging with Andean graphical culture in a more nuanced way than the ones in which it was traditionally approached. Um, this sort of culture without writing or lacking writing Idea. Even now, if I talk with relatives who are uh, not experienced in archaeology or ethnohistory history, um, they will ask me, "Well, how on earth did the Inca have an empire when they didn't write anything? Like, I, uh, they didn't. They didn't have the, f- the wheel and they didn't have writing. What What were they doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> but instead, um, in your work, you've shown how Andean cultures use writing and symbolic systems in a way that is their own. Even the um, Writing of Spanish, um, it's it's a one question. So one question that has come up in my fieldwork recently in the highlands of central Peru is how you see digital media and the internet changing this relationship between Andean peoples and their um, graphical culture, sort of making it anew again. Uh, because I have seen the adoption of digital media in Highland communities in a way that it could be seen as as incomplete you send an email you'll never get a response um nothing is posted online currently um that would nothing the relationship is very different but at the same time people are clearly using this people are using facebook and whatsapp to communicate important information i'm i'm just uh curious about how you see this change interacting with how they've traditionally used digital media, um, or if you have ideas about how it might go in the future.
2: Digital media uh, first soaked into Andean society, as I saw it in the village of Tupicocha in Huarochiri province, uh, which is only a tough day trip from Lima, but it And it's only a Spanish-speaking community. And yet, in every other respect, it's very rich in the things that we typically think about as Andean. The first digital apparatus that arrived there was a computer with one of those buzzing and beeping modems um, of the early 1980s, and it was installed in the village hall by the office that. Overseas municipalities uh, it didn't turn out to be very useful. Reception wasn't very good, and uh, nobody had really been trained for it and It was implemented for for bureaucratic uh, top down sort of structures uh, It was only later with uh, cheap and portable uh, equipment and the emergence of video salons in the lower valley down in for example Chosica uh the, we, this Chosica is this, one of Lima's edge cities of, about 40 miles up the Rimac Valley um those are the places where digital culture quote on and it was a very separate uh cultural phenomenon it started with kids who were like in 5th and 6th grade primary school. Uh, And so they took on the digital world in a completely different fashion. They manufactured it uh, for themselves out of pop media and not out of the lettered city. Um, And so we would see, I'd say, the, the star example to get a hold of the digital Andes is YouTube um the these frequently remote and arduous places and times uh that I've gone to to uh follow phenomena like the so-called water festivals or champería are now usually uh digitized via youtube uh and sometimes they're even choreographed, not exactly choreographed, but uh, sort of mediatized um, by techniques that are borrowed from television, such as subtitles and uh, external soundtracks. It's too soon to to judge, but I am astonished by the ethnograph- ethnographic value of of these productions. They have a completely different sort of uh, texture of social relationships because it's not a matter of an academia from a remote part of the world trying to to listen in. It's a process of self-celebration. The reason that it's made is that now so many, many Andean folk have gone to live in medium to large-sized cities and yet they have full rights in their villages, and they don't intend to let go of them. So it's important to, uh, to be au courant with who, who is achieving these ritual things and sharing in the enjoyment and uh, occasionally help to, fin- to finance them. As for writing in the, uh, you might say, democratization of the lettered city, uh, It goes on as well uh, by separate channels. In each village, there are usually a few people who are politically ambitious and they become adroit in making and handling documents. And I lived through the time when the younger generation were beginning to learn how to use uh, word processing. Uh, And as you said, as you said, Anna, not much email. Nobody really seems to like email e- even now. Uh, but uh, the creation of uh, constantius is a word that people like. Constantia means a document of record. When something, w- Once you've made a, a constantia of what was done, there's no doubt about it. It's a social fact. Uh, and so people like to write. Uh, sports paragraphs about the local soccer championship or things like that. And then, of course, the story of digital media via smartphones is just no end to it. There's an intense relationship between every Andean village. There's no herding Hamlet, so cold and so remote that it doesn't have somebody on the line with their relatives who might be in Montreal or Sydney. Um, and there's no need to go over anthropological ground that's already been well discussed. But uh, it's very true that at this point the Andean world is is everywhere. Uh, even even Manhattan, even my home neighborhood, the blocks that I grew up on, now have Quechua-speaking people.
3: Thank you. Well, that's a lot to think about especially especially your points about how it is um allowing for people who are in um diasporic communities um in other countries or in Lima or in Ica or wherever people happen to be um and facilitating that communication that 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 is a good point that i hadn't really considered thank you
2: yeah and um you know now that i've been alive a long time <laughs> It's interesting to see how things look different as you go through the ages of life. Um, a big part of that digital uh, civilization has to do with the fact that uh, life in cities is tough and hazardous and, and quite unpredictable so having a full comunero status in the in the town that you came from um, is the assurance that life will have some Safe pattern, someplace that you can go back to when you just don't want to be in the hurly burly anymore. And uh, I think that's very reassuring because it means that living the middle years of your life as an urbanite is not as disruptive and alienating as it was 50 years ago. It doesn't change you from let's say that instead of changing you from a cosmopolit from, from a, a rural person um, to a distanced urbanite, it changes you from a rural person to a sort of regional cosmopolitan.
1: Thank you very much for those insights. Um, I will turn it over now to uh, Professor Vanessa Gubbins, who will present, introduce herself and present the next question.
4: Hi, I'm Vanessa Gobbins, Assistant Professor of Latin American Studies in the Department of Romance Studies here at Cornell. I echo Anna's feelings. It's a privilege to meet you, Frank. Thank you. Um, I have so many questions, (laughs) but let me just start with one that might sort of link to topics that have been brought up already. And it has to do, because I'm I'm someone who comes from literature. I, I, I should have mentioned I worked on literature, uh, politics, and philosophy in the Andean um, region and the southern cone of Latin America. And I I wanted to ask you how you first became preoccupied with this questioning of both the exclusivity and the triumph of alphabetic writing. Um, and especially in relation to its counterpoint in supposed orality and doing so in the Peruvian context, I ask because this is, to me, it's absolutely essential, but it's not something that I think literary studies or recent trends in perhaps indigenous studies in the U.S. have fully embraced or fully thought through in a way that I think your work continues to be so um essential for that so i was curious where did this preoccupation start that has sort of followed you
2: well i've always been a, a bookish sort of kid um and this comes from the refugee origins of my family who were uh torn out of academia by the nazi years and wound up in new york but al- al- although uh my parents' generation were deprived of academia. They they had they were very literate people and uh I grew up with uh, a great appetite for language and for written language particularly. Uh, when I was at Cornell, you know, the most decisive moments here was when the, the late Professor Don Sola Um, allowed his doctoral student, George Urioste, to run a semester-long seminar on the Wadochiti manuscript. That was when I had a chance to really pitch into Quechua. Um, And it impressed on me right away, pre-PhD, that the notion of the oral Andes so far away from the world of letters was. Just a complete mistake. Uh, when I, as soon, as soon as the Shining Path War ended in 1992, it became possible to do field studies in the area where that manuscript came from. As I started to do that, I, I chose to live in San Damian, which is pretty much where the manuscript came from. It was quite lonely. Uh, not that the people weren't nice, but I was. I hadn't really developed professional relationships yet. And so I thought, well, just to get my toes in the water, I'm going to make a literary inventory of this town. And I went around and looked and itemized everything that had writing, uh, including, for example, the practice of working initials into the ironwork grills of houses, uh, looking at the way that initials were carved into the bottom of a wooden spoon or the handle of a knife, Um, the memoranda that people put in the margins of missionary brochures, uh, and especially the layers and layers of internal records that were made below the level of state organization. After a while, I realized that the Cheka Alyus, that is to say, the descent groups who had, were most prominent in, in the woto manuscript—had at least half of them had migrated a little further northwestward um, into some neighboring villages, so I moved over there. I found out, to my astonishment, that the system of Alyus, which is a formation somewhat like a segmentary clan, uh, that is described in as of about 1608 in Ketro, still there. Not just vestiges, pretty much the whole system. And when I looked to see how could that possibly have carried on during this era when empires and republics have crumbled, um, the key to it is internal record-keeping, starting as kipus and around the turn of the 20th century, shifting to writing, and it's all there. The keepers are there, the writing is there. The writing has become so bulky that most of the IUs own more manuscript books than they have members. Um, And they record everything. And to just find a close for, for this topic, I had to ask myself, why literacy? Why, why the insistence on graphic representation, whether it's quipus or whether it's writing or whether it's just carving your initials on a spoon? Um, it's because the agro-pastoral system and now the external migration system of Tupi etc., depends so much on certainty of responsibility and compliance. If you have a system uh, which is founded upon reciprocity, that is, individuals with their groups and groups with other groups and the group as a whole with the higher authorities, everything depends on certainty that people have played their part. If you think that somebody else is slacking, then you're not going to want to do the work either. Uh, And so it's... Useful, it's legally necessary, and it's morally comforting to know that there is constancia. Uh, I think perhaps the research that I did had some good effect in the sense of making it clearer to urban and international populations not only that Andean societies are not oral societies, but also that Andean. Societies are complex and stable societies for reasons of their own. They're not artifacts of government or civilization or missionization.
1: That is an excellent um, transition to my next question, in fact. I don't want to paint with too broad a brushstroke here. I think certainly you are attending; we have attended in our discussion to some changes over time, for example, in engagement uh, with with digital media. But I think you created an opening here for thinking about the Andes beyond, right, a, a post beyond a post colonial context in a sense, right, for looking for longer term uh, c- uh, continuities and. Dare I say Andean ontology, or Andean thought, or let's say Andean social practice, um, mm-hmm. to to avoid uh, too abstract of a concept. When I was a graduate student um, in the two thousands, the later two thousands, we were very much in the wake of the Low Andino critique um, that landed. Um, in different venues, but particularly with uh, Oren Starn's argument um, article, missing the the revolution, which was highly critical of uh, Billie Jean Isabel's book uh, to defend ourselves. And the essential, the very basic argument here is that anthropologists in the '70s and '80s were missing the revolution, missing the kind of political cauldron that gave uh, uh, boiled over into this shining path because they were focused on uh, systems of Andean kind of uh, structural thought and, and organization. And so that was very much the the context in which I um, was introduced to the Andes, really much in a kind of political, uh, economic, post colonial framework. And the more work and (laughs) the more research I do in the Andes, the more and more I'm convinced that we have pushed away IU. As a a kind of conceptual tool for understanding past social practices, right, in favor of uh, Western concepts of of ethnicity or identity, right, and their own that bring their own territorial logics. This is a long preamble to say, right. I I think your work attends certainly to, to changes and to to kind of the the uh, effects of material practices in in current political contexts. But you also have incredible uh, examples of clear continuities in IU structure in in Waduchiri, in material practices, including kipu use and Ayu practices more broadly. So thinking about um, cultural continuity in the Andean context, I would invite you to comment on Lo Andino, right? Let's say two decades later from that foundational (laughs) critique. um, because your work proceeds, it encompasses, and it exceeds that reflexive moment. And I, I wonder, how do you position yourself as a scholar in relation to these critiques and more recent turns toward indigenous knowledge and ontology more broadly?
2: In the years immediately before my self-immersion in Andean things, those years were the hardest years of the Vietnam crisis. And they were a time when politics seemed so suffocatingly urgent that it was impossible to think about anything else. I came out of that, for the most part, with a bad feeling. Uh, I felt that the white-hot focus upon politics had led people to very short-term, very tactical, and, to be frank about it, unscrupulous, uh, attitudes towards social research. I, in a half-conscious way, um, felt that the push toward single-minded politics, which has since then come to be called the post-colonial focus, uh, was really just nothing but a further extension of ethnocentrism. Uh, ethnocentrism with high moral intentions uh, um projected onto it, Uh, and I have no doubt about the sincerity and the worth of those ethical intentions, Uh, but I do have a great deal of doubt about the supposition that post-coloniality is a universal condition. Why is it? It just looks that way because we're on top of it. Uh, It just looks that way because that's the business we're in. Um if what needs to be studied is the colonial trauma and the formation of uh, deaths of uh, unequal and centralizing economic dynamics we 'll have at it, but that 's not what anthropology is for. Um, my professor here uh john Murrah, uh I remember when we, we, uh, gave the, when he gave his uh, Andean Ethnohistory Seminar, he arrived one day feeling disgruntled about a, a barrage of criticism from other social sciences within the college uh, by people who didn't really understand the motives of, of ethnography. And speaking of those social sciences by which he mostly meant survey and research in sociology and macroeconomics, he said, We value their methodological virtues less than we dislike their pallid and alienated posture. People sometimes call us anthropologists, butterfly collectors. It's not important. People may uh, call us ground-hugging, microscopic thinkers, collectors, but they never call us toneless, boring. With people, it is said of us that anthropology is intellectualized romanticism. It's true. It's true, but it is uh, a background fact to a concern with human integrity and uh, inventiveness that's paralleled in no other social science. Um, And that really stuck. Uh, And I feel that events have, in large measure, justified the ethnographic Particularism and historicism, which is the part of American anthropology that Cornell, to its credit, has often embodied. Um, The people who wrote the Lo Andino critique, the people who had such harsh words to say about, for example, Tom Zygema, have gone on to write the obituaries for the social tendencies that they thought to be the most transcendent, and world-historical important. Good writing, some of them. I have to admit that Aaron uh, Starn and his friends have, in recent works, written very well about what they called the dwarf star of the Peruvian Revolution. Well, that was, came to an end in 1992. They were the ones who had gotten honed in on a short-term and relatively superficial phenomenon. Uh, among Andean people today, in the places where I have done my work, uh, I don't find that world revolutionism, the post-colonial, really has any any roots or any demand for it. It's an imported product. Uh, so I I really would stick to the idea that the closer the closer to the ground ethnography is the more we uh, are constantly reminded that easy, easy uniformities are 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 delusive of course i i'm speaking only for myself and i'm well aware that uh, my spot in for example the american anthropological association is is rather marginal Um, In the American Anthropological Association, uh, yearly in the general meeting, when political resolutions come up, it's just like 1968. Uh, People, anthropologists though they are, uh, immediately and in vast numbers glom onto uh, whatever seems to be the hottest and most emergency political proposition of the moment. Uh, it's I, I view that as quite unfortunate. Uh, I look back at some of our great forebears, for example, Paul Rivet in France, uh, who insisted that anthropological commitments our commitments, not to universities, but to cultures that one studies and ways of studying them. And he got trounced uh, for opposing the expulsion of German ethnographers from European university posts in the Generation of World War I, as did uh, Boaz in, in our country. Um, I guess I'm a little off the, off the Im- immediate topic now, but I, the point that I want to make is that the ethnographic method is not simply a matter of being committed to the study of tradition, the discovery of continuity, um, the fine-grained perception of how societies make themselves. Uh, it's, it, it is all of those things uh, as a curative, as a, a form of uh, medicine against the juggernauts of easy generalization that social science uh, willy-nilly tends to generate.
1: Thank you. That's very, very thought-provoking. I'm going to sit with your comments and your reflections uh, for some time. Anna, would you like to take the next question?
3: Yes. Um so this this is pivoting a little bit, but as the Cornell graduate student in residence, I guess in this podcast, I'm curious now that um, I don't know you're you're back at Cornell, and we started chatting about this a little bit at lunch. But I'm really curious to hear. Um, you reflect a bit on your time here, perhaps what was most influential or what do you value most looking back that maybe didn't seem significant at the time? Or, yes, how do you see the Cornell anthropology environment changing, evolving? Are there threads that you see um that are still very important. These are all just jumping off points. I'm, I'm curious about what wisdom you can impart on me.
2: <laughs> well, Anna, um, I have to watch myself here because I'm not up to date on the uh, Cornell faculty and curriculum. Uh, so I can only answer half of your question. Uh, and, and the half that I can answer is, what did I feel to be distinctive and valuable about my Cornell graduate studies. And don't forget, folks, they ended in 1978. (laughs) Um, One of them was the fact that Cornell, uh, the anthro department here, offered a very free graduate education. uh, At the stage where a graduate student clearly showed a vocation, had a made-up mind about what to do in the world of research, Cornell backed them up It had very few curriculum restrictions. Uh, It was very hospitable to doing um, field work early. It was indulgent uh, toward those who had a a mania for Southeast Asia or the Andes. Um, I felt that that liberty was very precious. Uh, I feel now, looking back at it from the course of a, a career, that it was very precious, but also very expensive um, because it meant that compared to people from certain other schools, we had not been taught to take in the what were considered foundational varieties, so uh, the the four field approach, yeah, we Cornell had some rather lax uh, demands about it. Um, the uh, subfields of social anthropology that one would ha- teach in a conventional intro or second le- middle level course, all of that was uh, put a little bit on the back burner in order to make the most of people's idiosyncratic directions as anthropologists. And of course, I say that's expensive because then when you wind up being a junior professor, you're going to have to teach those things. It might be, you know, in those days it would be kinship. In another age it would be ecological anthropology. And in still another place in time it it might be um, theories of gender. Uh, And all of those are part of the game. So after I started becoming professional, I've had to put, quite a lot of effort into self-remedial education. Um, I have no regrets. It just uh, shapes shaped a certain kind of career that I feel was Cornelian. Um Another thing that I valued very much here was that, uh, to put it geographically, we're only about 12 miles from the village of Aurora, the hometown of Louis Henry Morgan. Uh it was out of the fashion, it was terribly out of fashion to talk about the fact that we were born in the birthplace. As as much depth as historic depth as US anthropology has, it has it here. It's the the crucible, the, the moment that really made American anthropology was the Iroquoian encounters in this land here, which was sacrificed and cut up after the Revolutionary War to make grants to uh, patriot veterans. This is, to the best of my knowledge, the first place where the idea of connecting with Native America was understood as a scholarly agenda through Lewis Henry Morgan and Colonel Eli Parker of Rochester, New York. A few years ago, I went to go and visit my late uncle who was a very old man living in Rochester, New York. And I went to go and visit him in his fusty, dusty house uh, and went out for some fresh air. And I found out that he lived across the street from the tomb of Lewis Henry Morgan. (laughs) It was almost a visionary moment. Uh, I uh, thought about it, you know, in a way. I'm sure that if most of my anthropological contemporaries had had a a similar experience, they would have noticed it and brushed it off. Um, But I remembered that uh, even though, for example, John uh, Murrah could be at times uh, self-insistent, Harsh in, in in criticism of many things in American anthropology, he taught us to realize. You know, he taught, he, he in his classroom. He generated the feeling that your American anthropologists, your sympathies with ex international cause of liberation are all very well and fine, but uh, trying to shed your skin to make yourself historically innocent is a form of hypocrisy. Uh, this is American anthropology, we do it, we inhabit it, and if we have any wits, we're gonna know a lot about it from the ground up. Uh, so Lewis Henry Morgan, of all people, that railroad lawyer, uh, in the mouth of John Murat, that ex-revolutionary and Spanish combatiente, he was the one who said, Lewis Henry Morgan is the prototype of an American intellectual. was worth thinking about for a long time. And it happened at about that period of his life that he was the president of the American Ethnological Society. Uh, And as a past president, the society had the custom of allowing the ex-president to design a special issue of the journal American Ethnology. What he chose was the early years of American anthropology. And it was really, at that moment, that was the first time that I saw anybody practice the history of anthropology as something other than anthropological housekeeping. Uh, Of course, the course that he gave about it, compared to the research, for example, that Fred Gleach, your neighbor here in the next office, uh, has been doing, uh it was it was basic, but it was well researched in its own time and in its, its own way. And so we came out of that classroom knowing who was Frederick Mason, uh, who was Frank Hamilton Cushing, and why. Um I don't know whether all the faculty at Cornell had that kind of uh deep self-understanding of our specificity as a culture. I don't know if they all did, and I kind of think that some didn't. But loose and libertarian, as Cornell was at the time, there was a place for it. Uh, and, and if there's something about grad school that's worth doing, that was it.
1: Yeah, I do think in many ways um, teaching, I mean, even Lewis Henry Morgan, a lot of the founding fathers of anthropology, are you know in some ways rightfully critiqued and but but can't be dismissed right when when in in a classroom like you need to understand the kind of foundations of anthropological thought and I do feel that in some ways anthropological education has moved away from taking that foundational work seriously in, in and on its own terms and trying to understand uh, the contributions that were made. I was lucky to have a, a, my theory was taught at, at a Vanderbilt by. Uh, anthropologist. I worked in Brazil, Tom Greger. And Ooh. he really, he, you know, he would not let us get away with, with just cheap critiques of structuralism. He made us, right? He, he really made us engage with the text. And I found that very valuable in my graduate training.
2: That's pleasant to hear. Uh, Tom Greger taught at Cornell, you know, before he went to Vanderbilt. <laughs>
1: I didn't, and I think yeah. now my ignorance is is preserved in time on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, he,
2: he was a professor here. Um, at at that, he was uh, a deep Amazonian specialist. Uh, he was as different as can be from the track that uh, Murrah put us on, or for that matter, it could have been John Rowe at Berkeley. Uh, but he he was a guy with real ethnographic commitment, and. Uh, I took one of his courses.
1: Well, we have that in common. I suppose.
2: He, yeah. Uh, he also in, insisted on some intellectual history. For example, he had us read the discussion in 19th century French anthropology about primitive mentality, mm-hmm. so-called. And uh, I... Enjoyed studying with him, and of course, it was a revelation to get acquainted with some of the classics of Amazonian anthropology, which are crown jewels, crown jewels in the Palace of Anthropology. Um, But his interests at that time were ethnographic derivatives of Freudian theory. Um, And sorry, Tom, they they rubbed me the wrong way. (laughs) Um. I was bothered by the fundamental lack of historicism uh, in in those theories. Uh, and I came and talked to him about it in office hours. And Tom got a little exasperated. And he said, well, everything comes from something. <laughs> and I thought, well, God bless him, but he's just not my kind of cat. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, what went on later in his intellectual life. And again, this was another one of those sort of intellectual death charges <laughs> that take an awful long time, especially if you're a turtle-like scholar as such as I am, <laughs> um, to to reach their full impact. Uh, but as, anthropo- as Amazonian anthrop- ethnography uh, heated up and got... Better and better and more and more central. In the 1990s, uh, I, I did make some effort uh, to catch up, and then I thought about. I had a, a warm thought about uh, about Tom Greger.
3: Thank you for
1: sharing that. Thank
3: you (laughs) for those reflections. And I will report that at least as of four years ago, there was still a pretty heavy early emphasis on on Lewis Henry Morgan in the history of anthropological thought course. And, you know, we had some difficult conversations about the use and the utility of still learning that. But um, it was definitely something that I, I didn't realize just how. Close to us, he was born, but it was definitely um, a scholar that we still focus on as someone who is, whether we like it or not, very um, influential, especially to us at Cornell.
1: So I think now we'll turn to Vanessa for our final question, not to put you, not to up the pressure too much, Vanessa, but if you'd like to take our final question.
4: Um, I suppose... Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it gladly. Um, when talking about the origins of anthropology here in the U.S., you mentioned it being born from an encounter with the Iroquois people around here. And you talked about the beginning of it being a scholarly, the origins of a scholarly agenda. So I was wondering if maybe you would share with us a little bit in your own, um, how you have worked in the Andean region with the communities that you have encountered. And I mean, in your writings, it's very much, there's, there's a lot of humor. I, I I distinctly recall the equipo, um moment. So, so I, I, I mean, I had more specific questions about that, but I, I guess as a closing question, I'll leave it open in its generality of, um how how you see yourself as a scholar there in those communities and um and re- reflecting about your role there no in your position
2: yeah um it's a good question i uh, to speak a bit of the history of cornell you know there was a time when the vicos project and applied anthropology uh was a ma- one of the main training opportunities here and goals, and I think also an ethical orientation. Um, that applied anthropology had, as it was, has gone out of fashion together with developmental theory, development theory. Uh, but it has continued to take root in the, in a certain degree of uh, urges and promptings uh, toward service, Activities uh, and grassroots, acceptance of grassroots obligations within the places where we work. Uh, I didn't, I have helped with a few things uh, such as fundraising um, for a certain community needs and activities and support of uh, pa- what parents, one of the community needs that People tended to press me about was backing up the students' elementary education because they thought, with good reason, that rural elementary education was left their students at a, at a disadvantage. I tried to work with that, um, but it's really only lately that I put together a, a, a book whose main goal was this concern of giving it back. Uh, and that concerns, we haven't talked about my pe- researches in Rapaz. Rapaz is not Guar- chiri It's in a different pro- province about 60 miles north and uh, an even more high altitude and somewhat remote place. There, I had the good fortune of working with a young ling- linguist, young but now an important professor at the Catholic University of Lima. Called Luis Andrade Ciudad. Uh, Luis is a real linguist. He's not just a a Quechua head like me. Um, And uh, together, we studied forms of verbal art, especially verse and song and rapaz. And our horribly delayed book, which was bogged down by, among other problems, COVID. Uh, has finally came out, came out last week.
4: Um, Congratulations.
2: I don't even have a print copy yet. Uh, It's called Tinas y Juivas of Rapaz. It's in Spanish. Uh, El Arte Verbal en la Cordillera de Lima. Um, In Spanish and Quechua. And the point is that it contains full Quechua transcripts and translations and commentaries and dialectological explanations uh, of all of that so that, although I it's not a book for beginners, but it can be read by everybody in Rapaz and I hope very soon, probably next year, to go back and to go there and, and give away some copies. And God willing, most or all of the delightful people of older and richer vintage who taught us those, all that verbal art may still be alive.
1: Thank you so much, Frank, for sharing your, your insights and your experiences in the Andes. And uh, now I know I need to include this new book on your introduction tomorrow. For those listening, um, Uh, Professor Solomon is visiting Cornell, not only to be part of this podcast, for which we are grateful, but also as the keynote speaker of the 40th Northeast Conference on Andean and Amazonian Archaeology and Ethnohistory, which was founded here at Cornell in 18, 18, no, in 1982. And we're thrilled to have uh, uh, an, an alumnus of Cornell, a child of Cornell, to be here to deliver the keynote lecture at that event. I think on behalf of uh, uh, Professor Vanessa Gubbins and Anna Whitmore, uh, we, we thank you for your time and for sharing with us uh, your experiences in the field.
2: Thank you so much, Matthew, Anna, and Vanessa. And thank you, Nikhil. Uh, and I know that when we start that meeting tomorrow, that's going to be a happy day.
0: You've been listening to Radio Siam's a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be with Professor Lindsay Montgomery from the University of Toronto. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.